0: Well, good morning. My name is Nate. If we don't know each other, I'd love to meet you at some point. Uh, but to start today, um, in light of uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth this week, um, I thought it seemed fitting to start with one of the Queen's stories. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. I read this this week, and I um, thought it was just so interesting. Um, there was this one time where uh, she was on her way to Parliament, and she would uh, go to um, uh, to begin uh, the parliamentary procedures. And so she was on her way to Parliament and uh, as she got older in her life, rather than walking up the grand staircase that leads to uh, Parliament, she would uh, have to use the the lift or the elevator. And so she gets in the the lift and the lift operator uh, pushed um, the wrong button uh, for her to go to the, the wrong floor. And so she's supposed to be going to Parliament, but. Um, he pushed the maintenance floor button. And so the doors open up on the maintenance floor. And as they open, uh, there's a maintenance worker there named Alice who has a cart and she's got her back to the door. And so she hears that it open, and she just starts coming into the elevator with her cart. And so she pins uh, the queen kind of up against the wall of the of the lift and everybody is You know, doesn't really know what to do. And when Alice realizes what she's done, she just starts swearing um, and starts uh, saying all of these expletives that you probably shouldn't say, you know, in front of the queen. And then everybody gets really quiet and nobody knows what to do and it's awkward. And the silence is broken by. Queen Elizabeth just laughing uncontrollably. Um, And so then she invited um, Alice to, she said, do you want to go uh, to parliament with me? That's where I'm headed. And she said, yeah. And so she accompanied her. And uh, then when they finished, um, the queen invited her to tea at the palace. And um, that's something that they did once a year together until Alice passed away. Um, Isn't that a a cool story? Do you know what that story is? That story is grace. That is grace. That's what grace looks like. And today we're starting a series about that. That's what this series is all about. Grace means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor, that is, it's love and acceptance that you do not earn. It's love and acceptance that you just receive as a gift. It's being in good standing with someone, not because you've done something to gain it, but just simply because that person, out of their own kindness, accepts you. That is grace. And the reason that we're doing this series called Grace is because more and more in our lives and in the world, it seems to be missing More and more, grace seems to be missing. Um, Grace says that your acceptance can be received as a gift, but the world seems to say that if you're going to be worth anything, if you're going to be loved, if you're going to be accepted, if you're going to be respectable in somebody's eyes, in order for that to happen, it's not something that you just receive. It's something that you need to achieve. You need to... To earn that, you need to to work hard and prove yourself if you're going to be loved and accepted. And this dynamic, when grace is missing, it ends up causing us to ask this question. Do I deserve people's love? Do I deserve it? And the focus tends to become more about us. Do I deserve people's love and acceptance? Whether or not I'm lovable, whether or not I'm worth something, whether or not I feel good about myself, whether or not I have confidence is based on me and my performance. How well am I doing? And we've all got some standards that we feel we need to live up to. And some of the standards that you have might be different than other people's standards. Maybe you you feel like you really want to be a good husband. And whether or not you feel good about yourself and whether or not you feel like you're worth something and whether or not you've had a good week pretty much depends on were you a good husband or not. Or were you a good wife? Were you a good dad? Were you a good mom? Have you been a good son or a good daughter? Have you worked hard? Have you been disciplined with your schoolwork or with the work that you have to do? Have you had a quiet time? Have you been serving enough at church? Have you been involved enough? Have you been connecting with enough people? Have you been kind enough? Have you been a good enough listener? And whether or not you feel worth something, whether or not you feel good about yourself, whether or not you feel lovable and acceptable is pretty much based on you and your performance. And that creates a lot of pressure. It creates a lot of pressure because you've got to perform. And that can create pressure in your family. It can create pressure on a team that you're on. It can create pressure in a company. It can create pressure even in a church. If, if you're going to be worth something, and if you're going to be accepted by people, then you better Bring your best. You better show up. And in that pressure, I think two different types of people are formed. Some people love that pressure. They love the fact that I've got to bring my best today and I'm gonna do my best. And these are, you know, in school, these are the kids who they wanted to take the test because they liked taking it and getting an A afterwards. And it just felt good. And they show up early and they ask the teacher, hey, now in the syllabus, it said that, that, that we were going to have a quiz today. We're still doing that, right? And you know what we call these kinds of people? Pharisees is what we call them today, all right? Um, they just, they like the pressure because they, can, they, hey, you give me a standard and I'll meet it. And I just don't understand why my brother or my sister, mom and dad are pretty clear about what they expect. Just do what they say and it'll work out. Just just be better and life will work out. Be more like me and you'll be fine. So the pressure can create Pharisees, but the pressure can also create failures. And these are people who, man, I left my house today. I got up early this morning and I gave myself a pep talk. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do this thing I'm supposed to do. And you still didn't do it. You were driving to work, talking yourself into all these things you were going to do, and you're driving home and you're just beating yourself up because you didn't do it. And consequently, you feel just a total failure. That's how you live your life. Some of you, that's how you've come in here today even, is just feeling worthless because you don't measure up to a standard. When grace is missing, we end up living as Pharisees or failures. Failures feel like I'll never be good enough, and Pharisees feel like everyone else will never be good enough and it's a real shame but here's the problem with that is in both cases sin wins in both cases sin wins if you're a failure you feel as if i can never overcome sin i'm just not good enough and you live your life either beat down because you, you can't do it, or you quit, and sin really wins and flourishes in your life. And for Pharisees, people can never overcome their sins. And so here's what we've got to do. We better put a bunch of rules in place, monitor everyone very closely, be sure to offer regular rebukes and corrections to keep them in line. And everybody knows that rules and laws eventually eliminate people's sins, right? And then the other thing that happens to Pharisees is over time, we become blind to our own sins. Well, my sins are so small compared to yours. Really? We need to spend time thinking about my sins when you've got all of that to work on? We really need to think about my sins? And so over time, Pharisees become blind to their own sins. And in both cases, whether you're a Pharisee or a failure, and we can all become both of those things, sin ends up winning. This is a series about something that has the power to defeat sin. This is a series about what the banks of sin cannot contain, This is a series about grace. And for the next seven weeks, what we're going to look at is how the grace of God actually makes it possible for sinners to become new people who live in new ways. Today, what we're gonna do is just, today's just the introduction. So we're gonna look at one passage of scripture that helps us understand how God initiates grace in his relationship with us. And then for the rest of the series, we're gonna look at implications of grace. In light of what God has done, how does that actually begin to change the way that we live? And what we're gonna see is literally, grace has the power to change everything. And so, today to get started, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we'll be. This is on page 1036 in the uh, Bible that's in the seats there, if you'd like to follow along there. Today, we're just going to ask two questions as we walk through this text. First, why do we need grace? And second, How do we get it? Why do we need grace? And how do we get it? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing this and he says something intentionally ironic in verse 1. He says, and you, speaking to people who are still alive, and you were dead. And you were dead dead. What is he talking about? Because they're not, they're alive and you weren't dead. You're here. So what does it mean that you were dead? And he goes on to explain that not just like you that's reading this letter, but everyone, every human being is dead. What does that mean? He gives us a clue. In verse 2, it says, the Spirit now working in the disobedient. Now, in this translation, it just says, in the disobedient, but it's got a little footnote. You might notice that the little L, you can go down and look, and it says, literally, sons of disobedience. He says, he refers to humanity with this little expression, you're, you're all dead, you're sons of disobedience. And then notice in verse three, he says, you were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So what it means to be dead, he gives us a little clue. It means to be a son of disobedience. It means to be a child of wrath. It means that you're in a family that's dying. What is he talking about? To understand what he's talking about, we've got to talk about, the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter one through three. In the beginning, the way that the Bible tells the story of how the world came to be, it says that God spoke it into existence. God is the author of life. The reason that things exist, the reason that, that there is life in the first place is because God is alive. God is living and God gives life by creating the world. And he creates human beings and literally breathes the breath of life into their nostrils so that they become living beings. God is the author of life. And he looks at all that he's brought into existence and he says, it's very good. It's very good. And then he places the first man, Adam, he places Adam in a garden and he gives him some responsibility and some work to do. And then he says, and there's one rule. Don't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And on the day that you eat from it, you will die. So God, the one who has given life, says, if you do things in opposition to me. You'll become the opposite of what you were designed to be. You're designed to be a living being. But if you try to live without me, you'll die because I'm the source of life. And then one day Adam and his wife are in the garden and the enemy comes along disguised as a serpent. And attempts tempts them and they eat. And the moment that Adam eats, he doesn't die. So what happened, God? I thought you said that if they eat from the tree, they're gonna die, but he's still alive. But something did happen. The moment that he disobeyed God, we call that sin. The moment that he sinned, suddenly the world was different and he was different. And suddenly the peace that he had always known between he and his wife, all of a sudden there was conflict. And the courage and the intimacy that he had experienced with God suddenly now was broken and there was shame and there was fear. Suddenly a world that had been pain-free had pain. He knew what it was like to be embarrassed and guilty and afraid and anxious. He started to die. And Paul says, the same thing that's true about Adam, it's true about you. The reason is because you're connected to Adam. You're part of his family tree. You're part of a family tree that's dying. And consequently, the kinds of things that Adam did, you do. And the results that Adam got for doing them, you get. Because you're connected to Adam. You're united to Adam. You're part of a dying family tree. The apostle Paul says it like this in Romans chapter five, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In some sense, all of us were present with Adam in the garden. There's some sense in which all of us were there with him doing what he did and now experiencing what he experienced. This is what it means to be dead. He begins to describe that for us. He says, and you were dead. You're connected to this dying family tree. You're connected to Adam. You were dead. And here's what that looks like. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Do you know what a trespass is? A trespass is when you go past a boundary. This is why there are no trespassing signs. A trespass is when you know what you ought to do, you know where the line is, and you just decide you're going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know, okay. I don't have a dispute over what the, the right thing is. I just don't want to do the right thing. I don't want to stay in bounds. I want to go past the boundary. That's a trespass. And Adam was a trespasser. So are you because you're connected to Adam. What's true about Adam is true about you. The kinds of things Adam did, you do, and I do. The kinds of things that Adam experienced, we experience now. We're trespassers. In that sense, all of us are rebels. We know some of the things we ought to do, and we all choose sometimes not to do them. We're rebels, we're trespassers. And he says, you were dead in your sins. A sin here is a little bit different than a trespass. A sin is when you're aiming at a target and you miss. In this sense, we're all failures. There are times where we know what the right thing to do is and we want to do the right thing. And we're talking ourselves into doing the right thing. And our wives are helping us. We're, you're going to do the right thing this time. And we still miss the mark. We're sinners we're failures. Why are we like that? Well, because we're part of a dying family tree. We're connected to someone who has passed this down to us. Sometimes I look down at my hands when I'm typing and I think, oh my goodness, those are my dad's hands. And some of you know what it's like for people to tell you, you're just like your mom or you're just like your dad. And some of you have lived your lives trying to be the opposite of one of your parents. We all know what it's like for the devastation that the actions of one person in our family have caused, that those damages actually start to affect other people in the family besides that one person. That's how it is with Adam, only in a much greater way. Adam's sin in the garden has consequences that still affect each of us because we're connected to him. We're united with him. We're in a dying family tree. And so we do the kinds of things he did. We get the kinds of results that he got. He explains this a little bit more. He says, here's how your trespasses and sins come about in this fallen world, in this world where Adam's sin is devastating everything. Here's what it looks like. Sometimes you walk according to the ways of this world. That is, you look around at all these other people who are sons of disobedience and children under wrath. You look around at all these other people who are part of Adam's family tree, and you learn things. And you think, I never knew I could sin like that. That actually looks great. And so you start to do that, and you walk according to the ways of this world. You would have never thought of that yourself, but now that you see it, yeah, that's a great idea. So the world around us causes us to walk like Adam walked. And not only that, but just like Adam had an enemy who wanted to destroy the good that God intended and was intent on lying to him to make it happen, we have the same enemy. He's described here, not as a snake, but the rest of verse two, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient or in the sons of disobedience. It says, Sometimes you learn how to sin from looking at other people and sometimes you are influenced to sin through the evil one. And then he says, verse three, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. That is, you can't just blame it though on other people and you can't just blame it on, well, the devil made me do it because there's also something in us that's causing us to do the kinds of things that Adam did and get the kinds of results that Adam got. We lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh, that is our body and our thoughts. There are appetites, that we have in our minds and in our bodies that we pursue even when they go past boundaries. And sometimes even when we're trying to stay in bounds, we slip and we go out of bounds. We follow the ways of our appetites, of our desires. Why do we do that? Because we're connected to Adam. We're part of a dying family tree. We do the kinds of things Adam did and we get the kind of results that Adam got. The reason that this is such bad news is because of the rest of verse three. We all too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the rest of mankind was also, as the others were also. He says, the reason this is such bad news, the reason it's bad to be part of a dying family tree is because someday God will chop the tree down. Someday God will judge trespassers and sinners. Someday God will will take this wrath that's building up in him. That is this anger that he has over trespasses and sins, this anger he has over the rebellion of humanity and the failures of humanity. Someday God will take that wrath and pour it out on sinners. Now that is not a popular idea to talk about in Western culture today. We want a God of love and we can't understand how a God of love could fit in with a God of wrath. How could a God do that if he's really loving? And yet we also know in our own experience what it's like for us to be angry at something because of our love. We know what that's like, right? When you see someone that you love, something happening to them, someone hurting them, it is a good and right response for you to be upset about that, for you to be angered by that, and for you to want to take action on that. In fact, the opposite of love would not be Anger. it would be indifference. It would be inaction. So God has wrath. He has anger that he intends to pour out on evil because he's a God of love. And God not only pours out his wrath because he's a God of love, but also because he's a God of goodness. It's in God to be loving and good, to do what's right, to stand up for what's right. If he didn't, you would have no reason to trust him. So God is angry at sin, but also at sinners. That is you. And that is me. And we can't distinguish between, well, in here and out there and them and us, because sin runs right down through each one of us. We're all dead, we're all, we're all part of this dying family tree. We're all trespassers and sinners. And that is terrible news. But God's wrath is not exactly like ours. It's not a bad temper that's unpredictable. It's not malicious, just intended to wound. It's not without all the facts. Instead, it is predictable. He gives clear standards and he gives warnings. It is righteous and good. He makes judgments with all the information. This is a terrifying thought. John Stott, who's a theologian, writes, the basic human tragedy is that people who were created by God and for God are now living without him. And they don't even know it because they're dead. We are not good people who make a few mistakes every now and then. We're dead people. And to the very core of us, the things that Adam did, they're in us. And this means... That the way to solve the problem is not just education or legislation. Like, well, if we just taught everybody what they ought to do, then they would be better and the world would become a better place. Or what we, we just need better laws. And if we had enough laws, then we would be able to fix everything and society would be able to function. And if we could get the right people to make laws about how teaching goes and the right people to make laws about how society needs to function, then we'll clean everything up and everything will be good. And here's the reason that that won't work, because classrooms and laws are not useful to dead people. Let me stand here by this casket and read to you the things that you ought to do. That does not work. So what is the hope for dead sinners? What is the hope for people connected to Adam in this dying family tree? The only hope for dead people is resurrection. And do you want to know something about yourself, Is you cannot raise the debt. So, why do we need grace? We need grace because the only hope, the only hope for getting. Rid of sin and escaping God's wrath is something that we cannot do ourselves. We need someone to do something for us that we cannot do ourselves. We need someone from outside of us to step in and do something that we can't do. We need someone who can raise the dead. And so we are dead in our trespasses and sins, connected to Adam. We need grace because of that. So how do we get grace? The answer is we get grace in Jesus Christ. Look at verse four. Here's the gospel in two words. You were dead, you were children under wrath like the others were also, but God, that's what was true about you as someone descended from Adam. But God, who is rich, In mercy, that is, who has so much compassion. He just oozes with compassion for sinners. Even though he's angry, his heart still breaks for them. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Here's what he has done. Verse five, he has made us alive with Christ. Oh yeah, but we were dead in our trespass. Yep. God raised us in Christ. Here's what that means. You might notice the phrase in Christ. This would be a good homework assignment. Go read Ephesians one and two and just circle every time you see the phrase in Christ. Okay. It'll blow your mind how many times there are. And that'll just be a nice lesson learned. Um, You'll be like, what does that mean? Here's what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ means that the way God saves us is He takes us out of Adam's dying family tree and He connects us, He unites us with Jesus. So our basic problem is we're all connected to Adam so that we do the kinds of things that Adam did and we get the kinds of results that Adam got. The solution to that is God disconnects us and connects us to Jesus so that what Jesus has done can count for us and so that the results that Jesus earned can be ours. That's how God saves us. So look at what he says. He made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. And then he can't help himself. He interrupts this flow of thought with this. You're saved by grace. And he's going to say that twice here. You're saved by grace. This is not something you did. You can't save yourself. This is something God does. He made us alive together with Christ and he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Do You see what he's saying? He's saying the way that God saves you from your sins is by doing something for you in the person of Jesus. And he's actually doing it for you through Jesus, in Jesus. The way that theologians talk about this is they say that we live vicariously through Jesus. We live vicariously through Jesus. And this is language that we use sometimes. Right? If you've got friends who are going to a game or a concert or something and you would like to go, but you're not gonna be able to, you'll say, well, I'll just live vicariously through them. That is, you're unable to be there and do that thing, but you'll pretend like you're getting credit for it because they're there doing that thing. Or somebody's going to get ice cream, you're not able to go. You say, make sure you eat the mint chocolate chip for me. Well, it doesn't really work that way, but there's something in you that's like, but I'll just participate through you. I'll live through you. And that is what happens in Jesus. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, you were baptized with him. When Jesus resisted temptation in the wilderness and overcame temptation and said no to Satan, it's as if you were there doing it with him. When Jesus had compassion on people, it's as if you were there doing it with him. When Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law and lived up to every standard of righteousness, it's as if you were there living up to God's law. When Jesus died on the cross, You were there dying with him. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God was raising you with him. When Jesus was raised, that is the rest of verse five, uh, verse six, sorry, it's talking about his ascension. After Jesus was raised from the dead and appeared to many people, he ascended to be with the father. Paul says, you ascended with him. And then what did Jesus do when he ascended to his father? He sat down on the throne and began to reign. And someday he'll return to the earth to fully establish God's reign on the earth to make all things new. And what is your future if you belong to Jesus? What does he say in verse six? He raised us up with him and seated us with him. Well, but you don't deserve to reign. That's why it's grace. But but you weren't there. You, you, You couldn't raise the dead. You couldn't bring yourself back to life. You couldn't disconnect yourself from this perpetual sin of Adam. But God did. That's why it's grace. Just like when we were connected with Adam, we did the kinds of things that he did and we got the kind of results that he got. So now, when we are united with Jesus, we get credit for the things that he has done and we get to experience the rewards, the benefits that he has accomplished. It's kind of like this. Um, When I was a kid, we had a rule in my house. Um, if I you know, wondered, is this orange juice for me? Or is this for me? Am I allowed to have this? Assuming it was a time where I was, my parents were okay with me having that thing, the answer was always the same. Buddy, my dad would say, buddy, what's yours is mine. Buddy, what's yours is mine. Are you wondering about if you're allowed on the computer? What's yours is mine. Are you wondering about if you're ever allowed to, to drink this juice in the fridge, you're allowed to drink it. Son, you're eight and so you don't have a job and you can't go buy juice. But I have a job and I work so that I can buy juice. And when I bring it home, it becomes yours. Even though you don't have a job and you didn't buy it, it's yours, not because you're such a good, you know, wonderful son, but just because you're a son, you're mine, you belong to me and what's mine is now yours. Or it's like this, there's a guy who worked really hard, built a big business, made a ton of money, accumulated a lot of wealth for himself and then he gets married. And his wife didn't build the company and his wife didn't accumulate all of that wealth. But now everything that's his is hers legally. Why? Just because she's united with him. And that is what Jesus accomplishes for us. Paul summarizes all of this by saying, verse eight, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. The way that God extends his love and acceptance to us Is not by evaluating our performance to see if we deserve it. The way that God extends his love and acceptance to us is by giving us his son and saying, Everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is is grace. He summarizes this whole thing. And this is what we'll talk about the rest of the series. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. The word workmanship just refers to a beautiful piece of art. It could be a song or a poem or a painting or a sculpture. He says, You, that is, those who have been united with Christ through faith. He says, You, the people who are in Christ, are God's beautiful piece of art that He has made so that the world can look and marvel at His grace. We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. That is, God made Adam the first human line and he's making a new one through the second Adam, Jesus. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Do you realize how bold this is? Do you realize how audacious this message is? The message is that even though you're a sinner, God has come to you in his son. And every standard that you need to meet, Jesus met. And you can receive credit, not by anything you do, but simply by trusting in what Jesus has done. We can approach the father in the name of Jesus because Jesus approached the father in ours. That is the substitution that has taken place. And by nature of being connected with Jesus, we find that grace has the power to conquer our sin. So why do we need grace? Because we could never save ourselves from sin. We need resurrection. And why do we need, where do we receive grace? How do we get grace in Christ and Christ alone? So let me talk to the failures and Pharisees for just a minute. If you've come in today and you do feel like a failure because of your sin, you're right. You're right. But listen, You do not have to crucify yourself because of your sin. Because there is someone who has been crucified for you. Receive his grace. And let me talk to Pharisees. If you've come in today and you feel like you and God are just arms around each other, just looking, praying for everyone, hoping that everything works out for all of these other people. Man, wouldn't it be great if, if he got it together? Yeah, man. Someday, they'll be like us. If that's how you've come in today, as if God accepts you based on how good you are, then receive this grace first as a challenge. If it were up to you, you would run the race forever and still lose. You would do all of your best effort and still come up short. You need grace. And as you begin to taste it, and as you begin to allow grace to get in your heart, you may just by nature of how you're wired always kind of love rules, but you will become more gracious to people around you. And that's what we're going to talk about in this series. Here's my prayer for you. Ephesians chapter one, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of this calling. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? That's what I pray for you. Let me do that now. Father, God, I pray first for myself. God, would you help my eyes to be opened to just how deep and rich your grace is? God, I pray for those who are gathered here today. Would you help us to see your grace and to cherish it? God, would you help us to look forward to the coming ages when you will display the immeasurable riches of your kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God, make us a people who cherish your grace and make us a people who give it to others. It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen.